All right, welcome to part two of our series, Be the Best You. And every weekend between now and Mother's Day, we're journeying deeper, we're adding on layers to learn how to become the best version of ourselves. Today, I want to talk with you about how you can be the best version of yourself in your workplace and in your home, in your workplace and in your home. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever sent a text to the wrong person. Uh, if this has ever happened to you, raise your hand if you've ever sent a text and right after you realize, oh, I sent it to the wrong person. Okay, now, next question. Have you ever, this happened to me once, had a text that you intend for your spouse or your romantic interests, and instead it goes to a coworker? Has that happened to anyone else? Okay, I'm not the only one here. All right, so we're talking about our work relationships. We're talking about our family relationships. And I came across some really funny text messages between parents and kids. So let's check these out. Here's the first one. Uh, your great aunt just passed away, mom writes, LOL. Why is that funny? It's not funny, David. What do you mean? Mom, LOL means laughing out loud. Oh my goodness, I sent that to everyone. I thought it meant lots of love. <laughs> Here's another one from mom. What does IDKLY and TTYL mean? I don't know. Love you. Talk to you later. Okay, I'll ask your sister. <laughs> I think there's something wrong with my phone. I don't think my texts are going through. Yeah, they're getting through. How can you know for sure? <laughs> Here's a good one. Please stop changing the Google logo so much. I like the original one. Mom, I don't change the logo. Google changes it. On my computer, you don't run the Google? <laughs> if I did, I wouldn't be driving a 2004 Ford. <laughs> and our last one for today. Don't forget to unload the dishwasher. Did you finish your homework? We have to go to your grandma's house for Thanksgiving. Dad and I talked. We're going to buy you a car next month. You are? Oh, my goodness. Thank you. No, we're not. I just wanted to make sure you were getting my texts. <laughs> so here's the question we're asking. How can you be the best you in your career and in your family? If I could tell you today one thing that would change the dynamic, change the relationship, change the emotional tone and mood for the better in your workplace and in your home, would you want to know what that one thing is? Is. Well, we're going to go straight into the Word of God and see his answer to this question. And it starts in John chapter 3. We're just going to jump in. We're going to get the principle. And then later we'll go back in for a little bit deeper dive. But here's the text in John 3. This guy named John the Baptizer who was really popular. Jesus shows up and all his followers go to follow Jesus. And people are like, aren't you upset that your followers are following Jesus? And here's what he says. I'm actually filled with joy at his success. Now, this is one of those counterintuitive principles in Scripture where when you seek other people's success, it actually brings joy to you. And then John says this, he must become greater and greater or increase, and I must become less and less or decrease. And here's the big idea today. I will experience the most joyful success I will experience the most joyful success when I sacrifice to make others great. You and I will experience the most joyful success when we sacrifice to make other people great. 
Now, the word joyful here is important because you can reach success in a sense of hitting your goals without thinking about other people, but you'll find it very empty. If you want to have a success that is joyful, it's counterintuitive, but it comes about when you actually seek the success of others. And this works in your home with your spouse, with your kids. This works in your workplace with your boss or people who report to you or coworkers. And another key word in this idea is the word sacrifice. It's when there's a competition between what I want to do with my schedule and what it would take to help that person or what would be good for my ego versus what it would take to help that person. It's when I sacrifice to make the other person successful over time, this actually leads to the most joyful success for myself. It's counterintuitive. I'll give you an example of this from my marriage. So Mel and I have been married for about 11 years. And about six years in, I learned something that I should have known from the beginning. Okay, but I'm a guy. I'm a little slow sometimes. It took me six years to learn this idea in my marriage. Now, the day Mel and I stood and exchanged our wedding vows, we both loved each other and we vowed to serve each other and help each other and we meant well, but I didn't really understand this concept because you see, most of us by human nature, our default when we wake up in the morning is to go out and seek our own success, our own fulfillment, our own joy. And we get married and we bring that default mentality in with us and we are still essentially living for ourselves and we think, well, how can I, you know, keep this person happy, get them flowers enough, you know, I want to love them, I want to serve them, but I've also got my own stuff, okay? It's a real tension. If we're honest about it, we've all got this tension, okay? There was a point about six years into our marriage where I realized this in a way that changed our relationship and it continues to change it to this day. And here's the tension that was going on in our relationship. Now, some of you will relate to this because you're in this season. Others of you, you might not be married yet or maybe you've been married for 50 years. And for you, it's a different tension. But the, the best place to apply this is where there's tension, where there's a little bit of conflict. Now, here's the conflict that was in our lives. It might sound silly to some of you, but believe me, it was very real for me and Mel, okay? And here's the tension. When you first have kids and they're little, I'm talking like zero to three, and they're crying in the middle of the night. And you have to change their diapers. And they're loud. And you have to feed them. Pretty much everything they need done, you have to do for them. And both parents are working hard. And both parents are sleep deprived. And this goes on day after day after day, 365 days a year. There comes a point where if you're like me, you get to a place where after you've worked a long day and you get home, you don't really want to go home to those screaming children. There comes a point, Mel calls them the witching hours. The witching hours are between dinner and when the kids are finally asleep. Everyone in the house during that time is tired from the day, and the kids are a little cranky and they're hungry, and especially when they're little like that, it's a very demanding time, and it's day after day after day. Now, some of you, your kids are older, and you've told me that, believe it or not, John, they never stop being that demanding. And I've just chosen to tune that out. Because I can't, I can't process that. I can't handle that right now, okay? But here's what I know. When they need you to actually, you know, change their diaper or eat, it's very physically demanding. And in that season, Mel and I never meant to be in competition with each other, but here's what happened. 
we started to get to this place where during those witching hours, during that from dinner to bedtime, it would be like, who's going to get to go hang out with their friends tonight or go to the gym instead of being home with the crying kids? Okay, and because of our human nature, we, for a while we were going through this kind of competition of, hey, you got to go out last night. It's my turn to go out. And we were both looking out for ourselves. And it was this paradigm shift where God, uh, it's not because I'm smart, but it's because of God hitting me over the head. I realized my job as a husband is not to just have a happy life and utilize my wife to try to make me more happy. My job as a husband is to make her as successful as I can, to make her as fulfilled as I can, and as joyful. In other words, it's, it's her life, it's her, but I'm here to cheer her on, I'm here to help her with that. And in our situation, that meant actually sitting down with my wife one night and saying, hey, babe, I need you to know I want you to be successful. I want you to be fulfilled. And ever since our kids have been born, you're working so hard, and I know there's more to you than just taking care of screaming kids. And there's seven nights in a week, and if there's some nights that you want to go out during the witching hours, and I'm exhausted from work, but I'm with the kids, I want to, I want to help you become the best version of yourself. I want you to succeed. And that ended up becoming a turning point in our marriage, okay? Now, please, as you're listening to this, no elbowing of spouses, Okay. You're not supposed to be thinking about how someone else applies this. You're supposed to think about how you apply this, okay? But here's the irony, and and listen up if you're thinking, I don't really want to do that, okay? It's counterintuitive, all right? I was tired at the end of the day. I didn't really want to take care of crying kids two or three nights a week, but it's counterintuitive. I saw her success, her joy, her fulfillment. Guess what happened? Well, as she kind of rediscovered, oh, this is who I am outside of being a mom and working and being busy, and as she rediscovered some of her passions and friendships and hobbies, guess what? She became a way more fulfilled and joyful person, and guess what that did for the emotional climate of our house? All of a sudden, there was this whole category of little things that we would squabble and fight about. The whole category just went away and got resolved, because of the amount of fulfillment and joy and success that Mel had. And now, we've not arrived at this, okay? It's not like I do this perfectly every day, okay? But I just try to do it as often as I can, and I think I succeed just a little bit more than I fail at it. But here's the amazing thing. In our marriage, we've gotten to a point where this is both of our mentalities. So, you know, if I've been working really hard and I haven't either gotten exercise or something else that Mel knows I need to stay sane, she'll remind me, hey, you should really go out and do whatever. Or like last night, I got a text from her. I finished the six o'clock service. And um, I was like, hey, should I hurry home? She's like, no, the kids are pretty angry right now. Save yourself and stay out. (laughs) Okay? You know, a few years ago, it would have been like, yes, come home and deliver me, you know? But now we're at this place. We're both looking out for the other person. It's completely changed the dynamic. We've become each other's cheerleaders and helpers and it has completely changed it you know some of you are at a place where in your marriage you just need to remind yourself and remind your spouse hey i believe in you more than anyone in the world i'm committed to you more than anyone in the world and despite all the busyness and the strain and what we might feel like we're in competition for resources i want to help you be the best version of yourself and this is the principle when you do that for someone else it actually delivers for you more joyful success. It's counter 
intuitive. So let's dive into John chapter 3, and we're going to go a little deeper into this story and into this principle. Now, as we dive in, I just want to say something, because we're always every weekend here teaching from what we call the Bible or the Word of God. And if you're new with us, I know many of you last weekend, you decided to place your faith in Christ. You were born again. And you might think, well, what's this Bible thing? Is it just a weird old book? Did, you know, one person write it and say, this is from God, everybody believe it? I had a point in my life where I didn't think it was from God. And so I started to research historically, where did this come from? And here's what I learned. What we call the Bible is an anthology, or it's a collection of 66 ancient manuscripts. So right now we're in the Gospel of John, which is one of these, quote, books within the Bible. Now, the Gospel of John is a historically validated ancient manuscript. We actually have hundreds of ancient copies of the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is within the whole Bible. There's four of these accounts of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus live, who walked around with him, and they document, here's what he said and did in his life. We call those the Gospels. Okay, so we're in the Gospel of John. It's a historically validated ancient text. You can go to libraries and universities. You can learn ancient Greek, and you can read it for yourself. Or I'd recommend getting an English translation. It's a lot easier, okay? Now, if you don't yet have a Bible, or if you've got an old dusty one that doesn't make sense to you, I have one that I want to recommend to you. This is called the Life Application Study Bible. You can get this on Amazon. You can get this. We probably have them in our church library here. Uh, Life Application Study Bible. This, for me was the translation of the Bible, and it's got notes that explain, you know, here's who John was, who's writing about Jesus' life, and here's the years that it happened. And then when you go through and you read a chapter, it'll kind of, it's kind of like having a pastor or a coach with you who says, here's what it means, and here's how you do this in your life. So why am I saying this right now? Because many of you placed your faith in Christ last week, or you returned to church, and you said, you know, I want to get back engaged with God. Here's what I want to encourage you with. The appetites you feed grow. Netflix knows this, and this is why when you finish a show, the next episode starts right away. That's just, that's just cruel of them, okay? They're, like, they're, they're engineering us to become binge watchers, okay? The appetite you feed will grow. It works in the physical realm, too. You know, if you drink soda, the more soda and sugar you drink, the more soda and sugar are going to taste good. This might sound weird, or pop or Coke. I've lived so many places in the country, I don't even know what to call it anymore, okay? But if you actually go a few months without drinking pop or soda or Coke or cola or any of those things, if you go a few months without drinking it, you'll lose your appetite for it. It won't even look good anymore. But the more you drink it, the more it tastes good. And this this works with our thoughts. This works with all sorts of areas. Why do I say all this? Because when you place your faith in Christ, Jesus says you're like a little seed in the soil spiritually. And he tells a story where there's four seeds and, and three of them start to grow, but they never fully mature. They never become a full tree because they get distracted. They get choked out. And what I want you to know is if God's working in your heart today, you have an appetite for the spiritual. You have an appetite for the supernatural and for God. You have an appetite for things that Netflix can't deliver, Amazon can't deliver, Walmart can't deliver. And, and by gathering here, you're feeding that appetite. So I just want to say, Keep gathering here on this service. Keep feeding that appetite. And if you're even hungrier, good for you, you can start self-feeding by getting yourself a copy of the Word of God. Here's one next uh, thing on that, and that is a sermon that I did back in 
January, we had a series called Launch. And if you're like, I, I think I want to get a Bible, but I don't know where to start reading. Well, one, start reading in John, because we're going through it in this series. We're going through the Gospel of John. But we did a message. It's the fourth one in the Launch series. It's called When You're Stuck. And it's essentially a little primer of here's where to get a Bible. Here's how to read a Bible. Here's how to start feeding yourself spiritually every day. So for some of you, that might be a review. For some, it might be brand new. But I just want you to know, if you go to connectionpoint.org, click on sermons, you'll see this big launch logo. Click on that. And then it's the fourth one down. It's called When You're Stuck. And it'll teach you how to read the Word of God for yourself. Okay. Our story this week in the Gospel of John involves this prophet named John the Baptizer. Now, John the Baptizer had left his career, his success, his family. He'd left everything to become a prophet of God, and his calling was to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, as we learned last week, Jesus was God among us, and the ancient word for that was Messiah, and that he came intentionally to die on the cross for our sins so he could reconnect humanity back to God. Now, John the baptizer, he was out in the wilderness, and thousands of people were coming to listen to him. But then Jesus shows up, and all these people go and start to follow Jesus. Well, John the baptizer, he had an entourage around him. They called him disciples. Jesus wasn't the only one with disciples at this time. Lots of teachers had disciples. And John the baptizer, his entourage, his disciples, they get jealous that everyone is now going to follow Jesus. And they come to him, and they say more or less, hey, You've been working on this thing for years. This Jesus guy shows up, and in just a couple days, all of our followers are going to follow him. You should be upset. You should do something about this. So let's read it. It starts in verse 26 of John chapter 3. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi or teacher, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, that's Jesus, the one you identified as the Messiah, well, he's also baptizing people. I mean, that's our brand, John. You're John the baptizer. He's taking our thing. He's, he's taking our thing and he's profiting from it, right? He's also baptizing people. And everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. Now, we're going to camp here for a minute because this is the conflict. There's a real conflict here. They're, they're legitimately saying, hey, that guy's successful and his success is coming at a cost. Ours. And I want you to think in your life, if you're honest, you have situations where this sentence applies. I mean, even the story I told you about me and Mel when the kids were really young and we were both competing about who gets to escape from the house for a couple hours, what were we really saying? We were really saying, it's not fair for you to go out and have fun and get a break from this if I have to stay here. If anyone's going to get a break, it's me, right? We're competing for resources, and the same thing's happening here. And if you're honest, there's probably an area in your life, either in your workplace or your home, or some other area where you interact on a daily basis where there's some person who you're in a little bit of conflict or competition with. Why do they get to be successful when I'm the one working so hard? Why do they get a break when I'm the one who really needs a break, right? We all have these kinds of conflict. And his disciples come to him and say, so you should do something about it. But let's look at John the baptizer's response in verse 27. He replies, he says, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. In other words, he says to his followers, you guys are looking at this from a human level. Yeah, it's true. He's taking our 
success and our followers, but lift your eyes up. There's a God, there's a purpose, and that's what should happen because God has a plan. Next, he says, you yourselves know how plainly I told you, I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for the Messiah who was Jesus. Now, John's about to give them an illustration that we can all understand because he's going to talk about weddings. And he's going to say, hey, you've been to a wedding before. Maybe you've been a best man or a maid of honor. And you know that if you're the best man or the maid of honor, the wedding's not all about you. You're there to point to the groom or to the bride. And John the Baptist is going to say, that's my job in life is to point to Jesus. Here's how he puts it. It is the groom who marries the bride. And the groom's friend, we call that the best man, is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. And that's our principle we're learning. John says, I'm full of joy, not because of my success. I'm full of joy because of his success. And then in the next verse, he says this. And so, not only am I okay with him eclipsing me, I want him to grow bigger and bigger and me to be completely forgotten. He says, he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. So I want to share with you from this the best thing I've ever done in my marriage and the best thing I've ever done in my life. And for you, this truth, you can apply it in your relationships with people, and then you can apply it in your relationship with God. So let's start with people. Here's the relationship principle. I will experience the most joyful success when I sacrifice my own ego, my own schedule, my own calendar, my own desires, my own financial goals, when I sacrifice to make others successful, I will experience a joyful success. Now, I saw this illustrated in a really cute way a week ago on Easter Sunday. So we had a little Easter party at our house, and my son Jack, who's eight, he was in the backyard. All the kids were in the backyard doing an Easter egg hunt. And my son Jack had this friend over who was seven years old. And all the kids are getting the Easter eggs. And then they all start opening them up, eating their sugar and having a good time. And, and I watch, and here's the background. I had given Jack a job in the backyard. Now, sometimes, don't judge me. We've got some jobs with the kids where it's like, hey, you do that and you just do it because I said so. Okay, but we have other times. Right now, I'm trying to teach Jack the principle of working hard and getting a return. And so I've given Jack some optional jobs around the house that if he does them, he'll get paid for them. If he doesn't do them, you know, it's okay. He just won't get paid. And I'm just trying to teach him that principle, okay? So we have these piles of leaves that I had raked now that things were starting to thaw from the winter. So I had these piles of leaves. I had these bags that we needed to get the leaves in. And I had told Jack, hey, if you put all those leaves in those bags, I'll give you a few dollars. You can make a little bit of money. Well, Jack had gotten distracted. A few days had gone by. Now it was Easter. I look in the backyard. Jack's got his buddy who's in like his Easter Sunday clothes, and Jack has put him to work. <laughs> yeah, I look out, and Jack's friend is filling the bag with leaves, and so I'm embarrassed, and I go get the, I go get the friend's parents, and I say, you guys got to see this, and you know, if you want me to go out and intervene, I can. Well, so we start looking out the window uh, me and the other guy's parents, and we realized Jack's actually working too. They're kind of parallel working. Jack was showing him how to do it, and they spend about the next 30 minutes getting all these leaves in these big bags. Now, here's what's interesting about this little scenario. Jack's buddy 
does not know there's any money involved. Okay, Jack's buddy's just this sweet-hearted little guy who wants to make his friend happy, and when his friend says, let's put leaves in bags, he says, okay. And that's why I felt bad at first, you know, that this little guy, like, but you know what? His attitude was just like, I want to, if that's what my friend wants to do, I'll do it. So they spend half an hour doing it, and his little buddy has no idea there's any money or payout involved, okay? So they get done, and they move the bags to the side of the garage, and then I pull out of my pocket these four $1 bills. And Jack's friend, who was just in it because he cared about Jack and he wanted Jack to have a good time, Jack's friend's eyes get all big. He had no idea there was a payout involved, you know? So I give $2 to the friend and I give $2 to Jack. And it was this great little picture of when you sacrifice. He could have been eating his candy or playing some of the other games with the kids. He sacrificed to make Jack succeed. And in the result, he got the payout. This was illustrated again yesterday. I got an email from a good friend of mine. He lives in a different city. And he, of anyone I know, he just lives this out. He lives it out in his work and in his home. And every time I talk to this guy, it's, John, what are you working on? How can I help you? Who can I put you in touch with? He's one of those connectors, and he's just always trying to help the people around him succeed. Well, I knew that his CEO of his company was let go by the board. The board fired the CEO. He had been very loyal to the CEO as a VP-type role, and I knew that with the CEO gone, his whole world was changing, and his job was probably in jeopardy. So I've just been checking up with him, you know, hey, how's it going? Uh, are you going to stay with the company? Are you going somewhere else? So I got an email from him Saturday morning, and a company that's five times as big has invited him to come into a much higher role within a much bigger organization. And the reason is this. The executive from that company knew this guy's reputation, knew that wherever this guy goes, he gets his work done. But in addition to getting his work done, he helps the people around him be successful. He helps the people under him be successful. And he always helps the company and the CEO be successful. And he has such a reputation for that that when he lost his job, immediately there was a better opportunity waiting for him. This is one of these principles, by the way. You don't even have to believe in God to benefit from this in your life. I hope you do believe in God, and we'll go deeper as we keep going through the text. But you could take this, if you're on your journey, you're like, I'm still not sure if I believe. These principles from Scripture are true in reality, and you can take it out in your life, and you can benefit from it. A person who has this mentality at work, who works hard and gets their work done and then looks, what can I do to help my peers, my subordinates, my boss, help them be successful? That kind of person's never going to be out of a job. That kind of person's going to be turning down jobs. Well, let's talk about this in your life in two specific ways. You'll experience the most joy when you help others succeed. How about in your family? I want to get really practical now, and I want you to just pick one person in your family who you could spend this next week applying the principle to. And if you've got some conflict or tension, that's probably the best person to start with. I talked about me and Mel, and we had this, that little conflict in our marriage, who's going to get to go out. That was the place to apply the principle. Now, some of you are, are laughing and giggling and elbowing each other, okay? But here's the thing. I want you to really think, if you're, if you're married, have you had this mentality with your spouse? If you have in-laws, maybe it's your parent-in-laws, maybe it's a son or daughter-in-law, where it's become kind of competitive or just 
the relationship has gotten tainted. It's just, it's not the emotional tone and climate that you want when you all get together for a family gathering. Think of that one person in your family who you could apply this to. You got it? All right, now let's think about in your work or if you're a student in your school, is there one person you could apply this to? I mean, could you imagine if you went into your boss this week when it's convenient for your boss, not monopolizing their time, and said, oh, by the way, I got the project done. I just want you to know, you know, I was thinking about my life this last week. I want to make you successful as a boss. Is there anything else I can do around here to make you successful? And then you follow through on it. See how it goes for you, okay? All right, let's keep going deeper into this because everything we've learned you can apply whether or not you believe in God, but I know most of us here were followers of Jesus. Many of you here were born again last week, and I want to talk about the next level of this that we as Christ followers get to do. And there's a few things about the next level. The first is this. The moment you trust in Christ, the moment you're born again, the very Spirit of God comes to live inside you. The Bible calls it the Holy Spirit. And here's what's amazing about the Spirit of God living inside you. He can empower you to do good things that you cannot do on your own. So you might be thinking about this principle, and you might think, okay, the who is my spouse? I know that. But my spouse has lied to me or wronged me, and I don't know if I can move my heart to a place where I really want my spouse to succeed. Here's the beautiful thing about being a follower of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit in you, and God can give you the power to forgive that person even when you wouldn't be able to forgive them on your own. So as a follower of Christ, you have a resource to actually do this in a supernatural way. You might have a son-in-law who you think, I don't want that son-in-law to be successful. The way he's hurt my daughter, the way he neglects my grandkids, I don't want to help that dude. And you pray and you say, but God, give me your heart for him. Help me to forgive him. Help me to love him. And guess what? If you'll let God do that in your heart and you start making him successful, it's going to be a lot better for your wife or your daughter and your grandkids, okay? Secondly, how can you prioritize that person's success over your own? What I mean here is get really specific. This, you don't have to buy them a Disney cruise. You don't have to do something extravagant. This is very basic. And I mentioned the story from my life with my, with my wife. It was just those, that little two-hour block where we were both at our worst and the kids were at their worst and just acknowledging, hey, we need to divvy this up, and I want to just declare, you need to get out of here some nights, save yourself, go out, figure out your own success, your own joy, your own fulfillment, and I'll, I'll be here for this time. That was the specific how in our example. Okay, so who and how, and the how is very practical, but it's also you've got the Holy Spirit inside you. Now, here's some other next level things as a follower of Christ, and the second next level thing is your motivation you know that principle we learned i don't want to say it but someone who someone could use it with the wrong motives that's how well it works someone could go to their uh, subordinates or someone who lives with them and say i want to make you more successful and they could use it in a manipulative way and that's not what we're teaching here because actually the idea in the text is john genuinely wants jesus to succeed and so the second thing as a follower of Christ is you can tap into the right motivation. In other words, I'm not just helping my boss or other people succeed so that I can get ahead. I genuinely want the best for them. And you remember when John's disciples came and they were jealous, he said, hey, 
you're looking at the human level, you need to lift your eyes and look at it from God's level. So the question is, what does God want to do in your son-in-law's life? What does God want to do in your spouse's life? What does God want to do in your boss's life? And so you're going to that person and you're saying, I want to help you be as successful as you can be. And you know as a follower of Christ that that includes them someday knowing about God and the power and freedom that's available in God. Does that make sense? All right, so third thing as a follower of God and a follower of Christ, third way that you can take this to the next level is this. We're talking about family relationships. Did you know the moment you trusted in Christ, you were adopted into the family of God? So just like parents and kids, you can apply this principle with your relationship with God. And here's the personal principle. The best thing I can do for myself is choose Jesus over myself. It's the same principle, it's just another application. It's saying, I'm going to choose Jesus' success, his ways, his kingdom, his work, above my own. And when I choose Jesus' success in my life over my own, it'll actually be the best thing I could ever do for myself. I remember when God was working in my heart and he was calling me out of my journalism career. And by the way, when you, when you really get in an engaging relationship with God, he does not always call you away from your career, okay? It's not the way it always works. That just was the case in my case. Uh, it'll be, it's different for everyone. But he made it clear there was this little church of 40 people, and he wanted me to go be their pastor. It was pretty much like pastoring a small group. <laughs> it was just a big small group of 40 people. And uh, I remember getting up there and looking at their financials and realizing they're not going to be able to pay me next month. And I had a great job as a journalist. I loved it. It was fulfilling. It was rewarding. It was, it was growing. But God made it clear that I was supposed to give that up to follow him. And in a sense, I chose him over myself. And I look back at the last 10 years of my life, and it was the best thing I ever did. It was the best thing I ever did. It didn't seem like it at the time. It was counterintuitive at the time. Now, everything we're learning, how this applies to Jesus and your spouse or your boss, None of us do it every time, okay? None of us have 100% success rate at this. It's not about doing it perfectly. It's about trying to do it consistently. So this idea of choosing Jesus over myself, every week of my life, I have times where I choose myself over Jesus. And I realize, oops, I messed up again. And, and then I just get back on and I talk to him and say, hey, I want to be choosing you over myself. I'll give you a really specific example of choosing Jesus over yourself. Where does this play out? This plays out in your finances. This plays out in your schedule. This plays out in your affections and your desires. What happens as you start to grow in Christ and you start to read the word of God is you'll see areas of your life where God says, this is my will for you over here. This is my desire for you. But you look in the mirror and you say, well, God, my desire's over here. And what we're talking about is when that happens, wrestling with yourself and saying, I'm going to move my will to be God's will. And, and I say wrestling because in my experience, that's what it is. Sometimes it has to do with your sexuality. God says, hey, I want you to be with one marriage partner, you know, in a faithful relationship for your whole life. And, and you, you think, well, I would rather do something different. And you say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do God's plan for my life. Or God says, seek first my kingdom with your time and with your resources. And you say, well, I want to use my time and resources over here. When you deny yourself 
and you choose Jesus over yourself, it's actually the best thing you can do for yourself. So here's a practical example of this. Just this last week, I was sitting on my kid's bedroom floor. This is at nighttime when the kids are falling asleep and the lights are out. And I've got this thing I do some nights of the week where I sing them a few songs and I just kind of keep singing until they fall asleep. And uh, my voice is not very good, but somehow they still fall asleep. So, so I was sitting there, and I got to these old, old songs about Jesus. There's one called, I Surrender All. There's another one called, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Another one that says, I have decided to follow Jesus. And all these songs are about saying, Jesus, I choose you over myself. I'll go your way in life. And this very emotional moment this last week where I was kind of transported mentally and physically back a few years. Because you see, about four years ago, I was sitting on the bedroom floor singing those same songs, and I had tears in my eyes. And the reason is we were in Prescott, Arizona, and it was that little church of 40 people, and God had grown it larger, and I was so comfortable there. I had an amazing staff. I had amazing elders. The people of the church loved us, and it was just this great community. It was like a little Mayberry-type place up in the mountains there. It was just this great little place. And God was making it clear to Mel and me both that he was calling us for a season to go to California, where I was going to serve as a teaching pastor. He wanted me to grow me in my ability to teach his word. And I didn't want to go to California for a number of reasons, one being taxes. There are a few other reasons as well. I just didn't really want to go. And so what was happening is in my heart, when I would sit down at night and I'd sing those songs is I was slowly wrestling with my will, trying to get my will over here to God's will and say, if you want me to leave what's comfortable, if you want me to leave what is stable, what is predictable, what is working, if that's what you want, I will surrender. I will choose you over choosing myself. And it took me a number of weeks of wrestling with God to get to that place. And part of that was as I would talk with God and just pray, I would say, God, you know, I really want to raise my kids in the Midwest, and California is the wrong direction. You know, we're supposed to be going east, not west. God, I really want someday, I want to have a yard that's big enough where the kids can run around. I know it's not super spiritual, God, but I'd love to have some room in the house where they could run around. And if we go to California, we're, you know, we're going to have to downsize, not upsize. And God, you know, I would love to be part of a community where I know, like, this is my church family for the next 30 years, and my kids just have a a stable childhood. And if we go to California, I know it's just a season. It's not going to be that. And God, even the colleges I want my kids to go to, they're not in California. And telling him all that as I wrestled my heart over to, okay, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus models this. We learned about this in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before Jesus went to the cross. He didn't humanly want to be nailed to a cross, and he wrestled in prayer with the Father. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. He modeled this principle for us. So what happened this last week is I was sitting on the kids' bedroom floor, not even thinking about all this, singing to them. They fall asleep, and I get to that song, I surrender all, all to Jesus I surrender. I get to that song, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. You're the potter, I'm the clay. Shape me into whatever you want. I get to that song, you know, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. I'll leave my success, I'll leave my comfort to follow you 
whatever it is. And it was counterintuitive to go to California for a season, the opposite direction. And this last week, I was sitting on the kid's bedroom floor, and I was singing those songs, and my eyes teared up as I realized that it has come full circle. It actually surprised me how much it came full circle as I realized, wow, we've got a yard that's big enough for the kids to run around in. We've got a house that's big enough for them to run around in. We're in a community that we're going to be in for the next 30 years. We have that stability. We're even near the colleges I wanted them to go to. They can drive there instead of flying there. Everything that was my heart's desire has now happened, and none of it came by seeking those things. It came by dying to myself. The best thing I could have ever done for myself was choose Jesus over myself. And as a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you to have this definitive moment in your relationship with God. I shared about my story with Mel, how we had a definitive moment in our marriage. We both look back. We were talking about it last night. We remember that paradigm shift when John woke up and realized my job is to make my wife successful. We both remember it. And I wonder, have you had that kind of moment in your relationship with God where you say, okay, God, I know I'm going to fail. I know I'm going to mess up. I know I'm not perfect. But what I want to declare today is that from here out, the way my life's going to be, my lifestyle is that I choose you over myself. And when it comes to my will and my inheritance, my legacy, when it comes to my my vacation time, when it comes to my money, when it comes to my desires, when it comes to my friendship, I don't know what to do with all of it, but I just want you to know I'm in a place of surrender. And I will choose you over myself. And if you make it clear what your will is, even if I have to wrestle with myself, I will get there and I will choose you over choosing myself. So let's close with just two very specific applications that you can take with you today. And we talked about these two different domains in your life. The first was your relationships. So in that domain, I want to ask you, who will you sacrifice for this week in order to help them succeed? And and by the way, as we've gone through this, here's what will happen as you study the Word of God. The Holy Spirit, some of you, God was really working on you about this one. And you've got that name or that face, and you know that boss or that coworker or even that other salesperson that you're kind of competing against within the company, you need to go to them and say, hey, I want you to be successful. I want to help you be successful. I want to help the company be successful. I want our family to be successful. Some of you, you know what? If just one of these is really heavy on your heart, just take one, okay? You don't have to be an overachiever. It's better to do one of these well. Others of you, as I was sharing about choosing Jesus over yourself, that's where the Holy Spirit was really kind of working on your heart. And the Holy Spirit was saying very specifically an area of your life where you know, okay, I really need to choose Jesus over myself. So I want to encourage you on at least one of these to leave here today knowing that's the person I'm going to start working for their success or that's the area of my life I'm going to start choosing Jesus over myself. I told you I'd share with you today the best thing I ever did in my marriage was this. Best thing I've ever done in my life was this. You will have your best life by choosing Jesus' way over your own way. Can I pray that for you now? Father, across this room, we bring many emotions, many feelings, many conflicts, many competitions. 
Lord, you've showed us from this beautiful, simple little text that we actually experience the most fulfilling success when we seek the success of others. So, Lord, around this room where you have planted faces and names into our minds of a spouse or an in-law who we need to start working for their success, pray that you'll help us to go and do that. Lord, uh, even in our parenting, there's times with our kids, if, if we're going to make them successful at what matters, if they're going to grow up with integrity and character and with, with healthy self-discipline, they're going to understand the importance of being in church every week. There's going to be times where they say, well, all my other friends don't have to do it. But God, we, we want to choose their success over whether or not they like us. Lord, for each of us in this room, just show us that person. And give us your motives and give us your love. Give us your forgiveness where we need it. Where we can start to genuinely work for their success. Jesus, as we walk with you, we have so many desires that we want to submit to you. And Lord, it's such an irony. It's counterintuitive that when we die to ourself, we experience life to the full. That the best thing we can do for ourselves is choose you over ourself. Lord, I have experienced this in story after story in the last 10 years of my life. And I just pray across this room where there's tension, where there's struggle, that you will give my brothers and sisters, give them the strength to wrestle their will toward you and say that I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose Jesus over myself. Jesus, we surrender all. And like John the baptizer, we want to see this world at a higher plane. We want to see what you're doing in our coworkers' lives, in our neighbors' lives, in our kids' lives, in our spouses' lives, in our own lives. And we invite you, Lord, shape us to be the men and women you want us to be. Give us servants' hearts that we will live for your kingdom, that we will seek first your kingdom, and that we will help the people around us become the best versions of themselves. Lord, as we sing now this old song, I Surrender All, we just want to sing it to you as a prayer, telling you that that's truly the state of our heart. We do surrender all to you, knowing the best thing we can ever do for ourselves is choose you over ourselves. We pray it in Jesus' name.